Christians. As we continue in our sermon series on the armor of God. So uh, if you've been around City Hope for any length of time, you know that uh, I use a lot of sports illustrations in sermons because if there is a TV on in our household, it is likely on sports. Uh, and that's it. Um, and so we watch a lot of sports in our house. And uh, recently, I have noticed that every set of commercials, I think it is, uh, in between a sporting event has at least one advertisement for a sports betting app. Uh, it's pretty much universally on every single one, uh, which is this new thing that's happening because of legalization of sports betting. And so you're combining gambling, which is a pretty addictive thing, with your phones and apps, which seem to be pretty addictive as well. Um, and every one of these ads ends with this essentially this like disclaimer at the end, which is like, hey, so if uh, we're ruining your life, please call this number. Um, even though the app exists really to make you addicted and to take your money. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist, right? Uh, if, if you were winning all the time, they wouldn't exist. Their business model would go out, right? And so, but there's this like, hey, this is this great thing, super fun. Also, it might ruin your life, so please call this number if we're ruining your life. Uh, recently, I saw also in a similar way, Instagram recently announced that it will, it's, it's uh, having this new setting which will alert you if you're using the app too much, like after a certain amount of time, it's going to tell you, hey, you should go do something else, which is odd because we are trusting an app which makes money off of our continued and addictive use to tell us when we should stop using it. Both of these sort of uh, situations remind me and made me think this week as I was thinking about these, uh, if you've ever heard the phrase, this is why we can't have nice things. Really, everything that exists in the world, we like think, hey, there's this really great thing, this new thing. Look at how awesome this will be. And in some way, we will figure out a way to break it and mess it up. That's why we can't have nice things. Human nature is such that we will make something great and immediately we have to try and figure out how to prevent someone from abusing it or destroying themselves by this new thing that we've made because it's just our propensity to do so. Now, in previous generations, in previous time periods, these types of things were always true and it would cause people to ask bigger questions about life. Ask, how can we be saved from this? If human nature is such that we can't have nice things because we just break it, how can we be saved? This quest for salvation seems less obvious today and less pursued today, in large part because I think what we end up doing is actually ignoring the bigger questions that are raised through these things by continuing to distract ourselves from the very things that should be raising these questions for us. Right? It's just far easier to avoid thinking about something difficult like, how can I be saved from this? When you can just pick up your phone, continue to scroll, watch a new show, or endlessly get on the internet and find endless amounts of entertainment or information to numb yourself from these bigger questions of salvation. For us as Christians, what we need to do is disengage from that endless uh, distraction, unplug a little bit, and contemplate what it means to be saved. 
It's one of the reasons we gather here every week is to take some time to unplug from the world and to sit together and to contemplate what God has done for us. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to contemplate life and salvation as we look at the helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6. So I'm going to read the whole passage as we have been doing, uh, and then we'll focus in on the helmet of salvation. Starting in verse 10. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on the salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Focusing in on verse 17 this morning, put on salvation as your helmet. We're going to really just focus in on what Paul means by this phrase and what it means for us to pursue this together as God's people. Well, first of all, he tells us to put on salvation as your helmet. And this, it sounds very similar to all of the other ways in which Paul has been speaking, right? He says to put on uh, God's armor, to put on uh, the shoes, to put on all these things. This word's slightly different. It mostly means to receive or to take. This is something that God is going to grant to you. You are to receive salvation as a helmet. So if we're to receive salvation, what exactly is that? What does that mean? Well, that word can mean a lot of different things, but mostly it means that we are experiencing deliverance or redemption. And what Paul means here is the totality of God's actions to redeem his people. Everything that God has done, is doing, and will do for you through Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says salvation. So this is what he is saying for us to put on as a helmet. And his readers in Ephesians, in Ephesus would know this from all that God, or all that Paul has already said in the book of Ephesians. Right? In Ephesians 1.13, he says this, And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. This good news, Paul is sharing good news that God has saved these people. And how has he done that? Well, he told them in verse 7 of chapter 1, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. God accomplishes salvation for us in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus coming, being born as a man, right? As we celebrate at Christmas during this Advent season, Jesus coming, God in the flesh to live among us and not just to live among us and to show us who God is, but to go to a cross for us bearing God's wrath in our place on the cross for your sin and mine, dying, bearing the punishment that we deserve, 
and then rising from the dead so that we can be accepted by God, granted his perfect record, his perfect righteousness. That is what God has accomplished through Jesus. And so if we are to put on salvation, if we are to receive this salvation, how exactly do we do that? Well, Paul has also told us this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. This salvation is to be received by faith, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. This is what Paul has showed us uh, in the book of Ephesians so far. Now, for us to grasp the fullness of our salvation, we can't quite get to all of that. Right To talk about salvation is kind of like to uh, hike up a mountain and see a panoramic view. You can't actually see the whole thing in one view, right? You could look this way and focus on one beautiful thing. You could look this way and focus on one beautiful thing. What God has done for us in salvation is so grand and big, we can't plumb the depths of it. We will actually spend all eternity trying to figure out all the depths of God, God's goodness for us in salvation. But what we're going to try and do this morning is look at a few ways in which this salvation is worked out in us so that we can contemplate it more. So we're going to look at what we are saved from, salvation from, what we are saved for, and what we are saved to. So salvation from, for, and to. All right, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if we are saved that, that requ- requires that there's something that we are saved from, right? It's a deliverance. Well, what are we saved from? What are we delivered from? In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says this, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of all of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Well, in this section here, Paul describes what we are saved from in the gospel. And he says that we are saved from both sin, Satan, death, and God's wrath. We're saved from sin. He says that you were dead in your disobedience and in your many sins. Sin is uh, anything, thought, word, or deed done in opposition to what God tells us to do or in direct defiance of what he tells us not to do, right? Both what we do and what we don't do in in, uh, defiance to God's law. Jesus delivers us from our sin by dying on the cross in our place. He says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, but that means that this salvation is taking you out of that, right? Being delivered from sin. And in our sin, we were subject to obeying the devil, right? So we are delivered. Our salvation is also from Satan. Part of this whole section of God's armor has been talking about what does it mean to be equipped to go into the world and to 
uh, battle against all the forces of evil and Satan. And so we need to know that we are delivered from Satan in our salvation. Ultimately, we are delivered from God's wrath against our sin. And God's uh, wrath against our sin requires death. Right? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is from sin, Satan, death, and God's wrath. This is good news because there is no other way that we can get past these things. Death comes to all people. There is no way that we can overcome our sinful nature on our own. You know this by experience if you've ever tried to stop doing something that you know to be wrong and you don't have the power to do it on your own. We cannot be delivered from all the evil forces of the world apart from the good news of Jesus. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 to say, But God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. We are saved by the good work of Jesus on the cross. Now, in order to understand what we are saved from, I want to focus in on the the way in which this uh, plays itself out over time, that we are saved past, present, and future. We are saved from our sin. We are saved from the penalty of our sin in the past. Now, not just sins in the past, right? Once for all time, God dealt with sin, past, present, and future. But that was accomplished in the past and is finished. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says this, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he, made, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. By grace, if you are trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation, your sins, past, present, and future, have been crucified in Christ in the past. You are saved from the penalty of your sin in the past. Jesus, when he gave up his life on the cross, said, it is finished. And by that, he meant everything needed for salvation is done. It's finished, completely finished. You have no need to pay for any sins if you are in Jesus. No need to pay for any sins. The penalty for your sin has been paid. It is gone. It is removed from you. As far as the east is from the west, you have been saved. You are secure in the good work that Jesus has done for you. Friends, if we're going to put on salvation as a helmet, we need to know 
that we are secure in our salvation. It was accomplished over uh, 2,000 years ago, right? It was accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross, and it is done. Sin was dealt with once for all. In this section of Hebrews, uh, the author to Hebrews is contrasting the Old Testament covenant in which the high priest would give uh, offering for sin on the Day of Atonement every year, would give an offering for sin, right? He would continually give offering for sin because sin was never dealt with or paid for. And he contrasts that with the work of Jesus, our high priest, who gave his life once for all of sin. This is why when you come here on Sunday morning, when we do our confession of sin, I don't slaughter any lambs, right? Old Testament worship, we would have slaughtered some lambs. We don't do that anymore. There are no bloody signs in the New Testament. Because Jesus gave up his life. No more blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins because it has been dealt with. Salvation has been accomplished in the past and the penalty for your sin is gone. You are also being saved in the present, right? That we, we, when we talk about salvation, that's maybe where we focus our attention on God saving our, us from our sins and the penalty of our sins in the past in the work of Jesus on the cross. However, that extends into the very present. You are actively being saved in the present. God saves us from the power of sin in the present. He saves us from the penalty of sin in the past. He saves us from the power of sin in the present. Right, that verse in Hebrews, what did it say? He by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. See, there are two things there, right? He accomplished something that will forever make you perfect. Penalty of sin is gone. You have the righteousness of Jesus credited to you. You are already declared to be perfect in God's sight. And yet you are also being made holy. There's this active work of God in your life now. Paul describes this more in the book of Romans Chapter six, he says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Now, again, this is not as opposed to other things, right? He accomplishes multiple things, right? He accomplished saving you from the penalty of your sin, but he also accomplished in that one offering, saving you from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. This section in Hebrew, or sorry, in Romans, uh, this is Romans chapter six. Paul has been describing the good news of Jesus all the way through. And this is the very first time that Paul gives uh, a command in this book. It's the very first time Paul says, do something. And the command is, consider yourself dead to sin. And alive to God. The do something is 
remember grace. You're already dead to sin. If you are united with Jesus, when Jesus was crucified, your old sinful flesh was crucified. You have been saved from the power of sin. Friends, I don't know if you realize the power that this has in your life. When you experience besetting sins, things that you always go back to over and over again, do you know you have the power to tell yourself, I don't have to do this. I can actually say no to sin. I couldn't before. I was enslaved to it. It was my very nature. But now you have a new nature, one that is conformed to the image of Jesus who is holy and righteous, you can say no to sin because the power of sin has been broken. And remember, in this whole section about the armor of God, we are being equipped to combat the lies of Satan. One of Satan's favorite lies is to tell you, you can't say no to sin. You have to do this thing. You have to embrace this again. You have to hate your neighbor again. You have to continue to pursue ungodliness in your life. You have to do this because that's who you are. And after you do fall, Satan reminds you and says, look, that is who you are. Next time, don't even try to fight it because that's who you are. The gospel tells us, no, that's not who you are. Who that is was crucified on the cross 2,000 years ago with Jesus Who I am now is seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, who you are hasn't yet even appeared. Because your identity is so wrapped up with Jesus that when Jesus comes back, we'll actually see who you are. That's incredible. This good news is that you now have the power to say no to sin. The power of sin is broken in your life because of the work of Jesus. You are saved from the penalty of God's sin. He will not count your sins against you. And you are saved from the power of God's sin, which seeks to enslave you now. You are saved from the power of sin by the work of God in Jesus. That's not it. There's actually more. In the future, you will also be saved from the presence of sin. From the very presence of sin. Romans 8, 22 through 25 says this, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. God has promised to save us from the presence of sin. Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. We already sang that this morning in Joy to the World, right? Far as the curse is found. Every place in all of creation in which you experience 
this glorious thing and then all of a sudden say, this is why we can't have nice things. Jesus will redeem. Every place where the curse has taken root, relationships that are wonderful and awesome and then filled with conflict, the curse removed. Creation, which is glorious and beautiful, and yet, right, the, the, the most beautiful places in the world sometimes experience the most horrific natural disasters, right? That's why I live in Indiana. Not all that pretty all the time, but probably not going to die from weather, right? Like, you, you take your trade-offs, right? But none, no, no, none of that. You don't have to choose. The beauty of creation, no curse, no threats of death by natural disaster, No global pandemic. No conflict with friends and family. No sinful desire that I can't seem to overcome. No presence of sin at all. Saved from the presence of sin in the future. One of my favorite hymns is uh, by William Cowper called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which is like, you could get away with titles like that in the past, but probably not now. People would be like, is this a heavy metal song? There's a fountain filled with blood. Like, what's going on? Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. No more sin. Completely gone. This is what it means that God has granted salvation. That you are saved from the penalty of sin in the past. Remember, that was like four points ago. You might have forgotten it already, but it was so good then, right, when you were contemplating. No more penalty of sin. The power of sin is completely broken. It is gone. And the presence of sin will one day be completely removed. What are we to do with all of this? Put it on. Receive it, take it, take it and put it on your head like a helmet. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation, let me tell you, there is nothing in the world that can do this for you. We will not be able to progress enough. We cannot find salvation on your own. We can't find, we can't have the nice things of the universe because we will simply break them no matter what it is. We thought that we could advance ourselves in such a way, and yet a microscopic uh, disease can cripple the entire world. We're fragile. We need salvation. Trust in Christ and be saved from yourself from your sin, from Satan, from God's wrath, and from death itself. Everyone will die. Have you asked and answered any questions related to that? Is there anything in all the world that tells you answers that satisfy your soul? Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can save. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation, you need to protect yourself with this truth of your salvation like a helmet. 
Maybe the most important piece of armor that you would wear would be a helmet. Protect yourself with the truth of salvation. If the penalty of sin is gone, then Satan can do nothing to tempt you with thoughts that God doesn't love you. When, you're, when you have feelings of unworthiness, when you have this sense that God doesn't really love you, when, when Satan brings back your past sins or your present sins, the very sins that you committed last night, and he brings them to your thoughts, you can remind him that you were saved from the penalty of sin 2,000 years ago on the cross. That Jesus said it is finished, and that means it's finished. When you rise from the dead, you get to declare things that as they are. Jesus said it's done. That means it's done. The penalty of sin is gone. You get to say no to sin in the present because the power of sin is completely broken. It was crucified. It is dead. This is the crazy beauty of uh, pursuing holiness in the New Testament, right? Uh, pursuing holiness in the New Testament Right, Paul over and over says, put to death the works of the flesh in you. But in Romans, he says, consider yourself, yourself already dead. You are to put to dead something that's already dead. What that means is you are receiving grace to do so. It's not your hard work that's going to put your sin to death. It's recognizing that Jesus has done all the hard work already. He's already accomplished everything for you. Put that on. And if it's true that you are saved in the future from the presence of sin, put that on and hope. We will groan, as Paul says, because this world is not as it ought to be. But we can groan with hope because one day it will be as it ought to be. Because Jesus will remove the penalty or the presence of sin. Well, that's what we're saved from. But we're also saved for something. We're saved for something. Paul uses the helmet metaphor, meaning that he envisions not just receiving salvation and holding on to it, but making it useful. Not that salvation is merely this thing that is used by God in service to him in the world. Certainly not. But he does intend for Christians to put on the helmet, which means what are we saved for? What are we putting on this helmet for? Certainly we are saved from sin, but what are we saved for? Now there's a number of things that we could say. Obviously we are saved for God's glory. Ephesians 1, 6 says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Part of the reason we are saved is simply to worship God, to give him glory and honor. But also, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 10 Right, right on the heels of talking about you are receiving salvation by grace, he says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So, right, meaning for, meaning a purpose, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This immediately follows, you cannot save yourself, right? This is a free gift. You cannot save yourself. But he did create us for good works. He saved us for the good things that he has planned for us to do, right? If salvation was simply this free gift with no purpose for your, the rest of your life, then God would just save us and zap us to heaven or 
just come back and finish this whole thing, right? Why has he not? Well, that's in his good providence to answer. But he has given us a purpose in this place. Loving God and loving neighbor, right? That's what good works are. He saved us for good works. Well, good works defined all throughout the scriptures are loving God and loving neighbor. A personal and private holiness, walking with God and following his commands. And then a public and corporate holiness, walking with God and following his commands as it relates to other people. A personal and private holiness, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And we have already said, the power of sin is broken in your life. And that is for you to walk in good works, right? Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about grace, we only talk about uh, the things that God requires of us to say, yeah, but we stink at that and Jesus forgave us. That's true. But he also equipped you with the Holy Spirit to actually do those things that he said to do, right? That we're actually to grow in being made holy, right? He perfected for all time those who are being made holy. You are not your own if you belong to Jesus. You belong to God. You belong to God. That means your whole life, your time, your hobbies, your job, your parenting, your friendships, your sexuality, your money, everything belongs to God. Everything. We are saved not for a free pass to do what you want. We are saved to belong to God. Saved to belong to God. Saved for the good works that he has already planned for you. Right? That's what it says. You are God's masterpiece. He's already planned the good things that you're going to walk into. Now, again, not saved by those things, saved for those things. This also has a corporate and public dimension. Salvation includes being saved for justice and mercy and acts of generosity From the Old Testament law to the prophets, to the gospels, to the parable of the Good Samaritan, to the book of James and its description of pure religion as caring for orphans and widows, the Bible is abundantly clear that uh, that to understand the gospel is to display justice and mercy in real and tangible ways, radical and sacrificial ways. And to lack those things is to lack Christ. We are saved for such acts of generosity and mercy. Understanding the gospel should transform everything about our public lives. How we do community here as a church. How we interact and serve in our city. How we vote and influence public uh, office and Uh, policies and all of those things as citizens of this world and citizens of the world to come. How we give, how we think about racism, abortion, mass incarceration, care for refugees, care for the homeless and poor. All of this is also owned by Jesus. And how we walk into these things is directly tied to what we are saved for, good works. We are saved to be a city on a hill, a light to the nations, 
Not to save from all these things so that we can then hide in our corner. Right? No. You don't hide a light under a basket. That's what Jesus says, right? You shine it. We are saved for something. Displaying Christ in good works and acts of mercy and generosity to our city. Now, don't twist this. You are not saved by any of those things. Not saved by any of those things. No, saved by grace through faith, as we already said, Jesus saves. You cannot add anything to it. But if you take Christ, if you take Christ and take this salvation and wear it like a helmet and it doesn't transform how you love your neighbor, I don't think you picked up the helmet of salvation. Picked up some other helmet. Because the helmet of salvation is for good works. So make sure that you are picking up the right helmets. The helmet of salvation is for good works. We preach Jesus because Jesus transforms and is the hope of the world. And that hope should be extended into the world through us. It's what we're saved for. Well, finally, I want to focus our attention. We're saved to something. We're saved from something. We're saved for something. But we're also saved to something, or rather to someone, to God himself. Ephesians 2.18 says this, Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. As we walked through the book of Ephesians, right, we, we paid particular attention to the work of the Trinity in the book of Ephesians. And we see it on display here in glorious ways, the triune God at work to save and bring us to God. The Father has planned our salvation and sent His Son to accomplish it. The Son accomplish salvation and ascends into heaven and sends the Father and the Son, send the Spirit to come and to activate salvation in you, to create you anew in Christ, to unite you to Jesus, and all of that with the purpose of bringing you to the Father. Bringing you to the Father. In the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a section in Hebrews 12 where the, the author is contrasting uh, the people of God coming to Mount Sinai. We looked at this passage when we were in the book of Exodus. But when the people of God come to Mount Sinai to receive the law, right, they can't even come up on the mountain because it's too dangerous. Only Moses can come up. And when Moses comes back down, they, they make him wear a veil over his face because his face is shining too brightly. They can't look upon him. It's too holy. Hebrews says this. No, it says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. No, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Salvation is not just from sin and death as though God is bringing you out of the pit in order to set you off to the side by yourself. Saved from your sin, yes, but not loved by God. No, that's not it. Salvation is not just for good works as though God is in need of some workers in the universe and he's going to use this salvation to accomplish it. No, salvation is to God himself. 
so that God can bring you close to himself because he loves you. We have to ground all of this salvation from our sin and death, salvation for good works, in the fact that God has accomplished all of this for the purpose of bringing you close to him. That's what he wants. He wants to come close to you. That's what he desires. The point of this is to say, when we think of our salvation, let's not stop simply at forgiveness of sins or at holiness and good works and mission and justice. All of that is completely true. And nothing less than that is what I'm calling us to. But why do we do all this? Why did God accomplish all of this? Because he loves you. Because he's not simply the creator, lawgiver, and master of your soul, but he's also the lover of your soul, which will remove any obstacle to bring you close. The reason I think we forget and downplay salvation is because we forget what we get. We're content to think that our sins are forgiven, but that God still doesn't really like us. Maybe we're tolerated, but we're certainly not recklessly loved. We're content to serve God and love neighbor and promote justice because maybe it will quiet our conscience and that nagging doubt that God doesn't really love us. If we just do enough good things, then God will really love us. Or we're content to distract ourselves with social media, with entertainment, with sports, with material things, all in order to avoid that quiet place where it's just us, just our thoughts and our hearts and God. We avoid that place so much because we're afraid of what we'll hear. When it's just us and our thoughts before God alone, we're afraid of what we'll hear. Christian, put on the salvation, the helmet of salvation, which has saved you from sin, Satan, and death, has saved you for good works, and has brought you into the presence of God, has brought you to God. Overwhelm your distraction with the character of God and his goodness. I want you to do one thing this week in order to to start to build this habit, okay? Every day this week, I want you to contemplate your salvation and specifically your being saved to God himself for five uninterrupted minutes every day. Just five minutes. Set a timer and read this passage from Revelation 21, three through four. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Read this passage and just contemplate your salvation for five uninterrupted minutes. Consider it your pregame routine before you strap on your helmet to go face the world. Let this be the thing that the refrain that you hear over and over again, that God has said, I am going to be near my people. I'm going to save them so that I can be near to them and see how that will transform your life. See how it will transform your engagement with the world, your power to put sin to death, 
your power to love and forgive others, and your power to experience the love of God in salvation. Let's do that together as God's people this week and put on the helmet of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you contemplating the good work that you have done. And Lord, we ask that you would remind us Jesus, would you remind us by your spirit of this good work that you have accomplished? You have saved us. You are saving us and you will save us. Jesus, help us to focus our attention this week on your salvation for us. And would you gain all glory and honor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.